Welcome back to Venture Studio, the podcast where your host, Dave Lerner, entrepreneur, angel investor in over 70 companies and director of entrepreneurship at Columbia University, interviews the angel investors and venture capitalists who make up New York City's entrepreneurial ecosystem. I am your producer, Kevin Weeks. This week's guest is Jessica Lawrence Quinn, CEO of NY Tech Alliance, a nonprofit organization supporting New York's growing technology community, and the organizer of New York Tech Meetup, the world's largest meetup group. Remember, all of our shows are available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Google Play. And make sure to subscribe on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Venture Studio so you never miss an episode. And now I'm going to hand it over to Dave for a quick preview of this episode. For those of you who don't know her yet, I'm delighted that you'll have a chance to get to know our next guest. In terms of being at the epicenter of everything that's going on in New York Tech, only Jessica Lawrence Quinn and perhaps a handful of others operate in that rarefied air. Jessica is truly a force of nature, a writer, a CEO, a speaker, an organizer, a leader. She's an incredibly effective advocate for inclusion and diversity and a more human-centered approach in tech. She's also the CEO of the New York Tech Alliance, a 60,000-member strong organization that is the result of a merger between the New York Tech Meetup and the New York Tech Council. I've served on the board for these past six years and have rarely encountered someone who is more formidable and effective as a leader in any organization of which I've been a part. In this conversation, we focused on Jessica's focus on promoting diversity and inclusion in tech, as well as the numerous programs she and the New York Tech Alliance have implemented for women in tech. We also explore her deep interest in the future of work and her views on how to cultivate human-centered work environments. Whether you're an investor or founder helping forge the culture of your new startup or someone contemplating what kind of work environment you want to be a part of, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Okay, let's head on up to the office. In the office, baby. Going up. Jessica, great to have you on. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. You're the CEO of the New York Tech Alliance, and I know this is the result of a, a merger between New York Tech Meetup and the New York Tech Council. Right. If, if you're okay with it, I'd just like to start with New York Tech Meetup because many people have heard of it, but maybe they haven't been to one of the monthly gatherings and maybe they don't know what really goes on behind the scenes. If you don't mind, why don't you just tell us a little about the history and trajectory of the New York Tech Meetup? Sure. So New York Tech Meetup was founded in 2004 by Scott Heiferman, who founded meetup.com. And uh, as Scott would explain it, he would say he founded New York Tech Meetup to, uh, number one, eat his own dog food. So he um, he was building the platform meetup.com and wanted to test out this concept of creating meetup groups on the platform. So he did that. He also really wanted to connect with other people who were building tech companies at the time. Um, I think, you know, this was pre my time in New York, but he, um, it, it was really a time in the city when people were coming back from a crash and the tech community was just kind of starting to grow again. And so Scott hosted his first New York tech meetup in a conference room at his office. And I think two people showed up uh, and one of those people was Don Barber and she became the co-founder of, of New York tech meetup. And it basically grew from there. It always, from the very beginning has really been about show and tell uh, and about getting 
feedback and support from the other people who attend. And, you know, it started in that small conference room, but it has grown so much over the years. It kept having to move into bigger and bigger venues. Um, membership kept growing. Uh, and, and by 2010, uh, a number of people in the community really felt like there were some legs to the New York Tech Meetup beyond it, it just being a monthly meetup and that it could become a nonprofit organization. And so it became a nonprofit. Um, we had about 15,000 members at the time. And I was brought on as the, the first full-time employee. And at the time, my, my title was managing director and then executive director um, back in 2011. And, um, and since then, right before the merger, we hit the 50,000 member mark and We've now been doing the meetup at the Skirball Theater at NYU, I think, for almost seven years. Um, and that's a theater with 850 seats. And uh, and our format has stayed relatively the same. You know, there are a couple of, of key factors that make New York Tech Meetup a little bit different in terms of the way that we do things. We tend to not allow any PowerPoint. Um, people have to get up on stage and really demo their technology live. And we find that doing those live demos really helps bring that technology to life in front of the audience and the audience can really feel what it would be like to use that product. And that's very different than just kind of seeing someone flip through PowerPoint slides. Uh, the other thing, and this has been a rule since we launched New York Tech Meetup, is that we don't allow business model questions, <laughs> which, um, you know, I think sometimes right. the startup community is kind of like, that's that's the holy grail. You want to know how someone's going to make money off of this thing. Um, but it, for us, we really try to focus on the technology and the product development and the design and some of those factors. And, and we leave the business model questions for other gatherings. When you said 2011, I was shocked. Has it been six years already? It, so. Yes, it will be. <laughs> I can't believe it myself. April 1st, it'll be six years. And now a lot of New York's finest companies and coolest companies had their debut at the New York Tech Meetup over the years. What's, what's up with that? Yeah, yeah. So the the stage at New York Tech Meetup has become pretty well known as as a really good place to launch, um, and a lot of that has to do with who's in the audience. That we attract a lot of investors, and we attract a lot of early adopters, and um, and members of the press. And so, if you have a product that you really want the community to know about that you want help building, whether it's that you're looking for more users or you're looking to hire people, getting up on that stage really helps you get in front of just the right audience to support your growth and, and help you with your trajectory. And so, um, you know, we've had every company from Tumblr to Foursquare, Livestream, um, MongoDB, DigitalOcean, uh, a lot of companies that, um, really look back and say, you know, that moment on the New York Tech Meetup stage was really a pivotal moment for us. You know, I also think many people probably don't know about how involved we've been in some of the causes that we've supported over the years. Maybe you could share a little about that as well. Yeah, so I think, you know, one of, one of the first things that I worked on that was probably one of the, the bigger things is... Um, the SOPA and PIPA protests that we did back in 2012, um, those were two pieces of legislation before Congress that really threatened to curtail freedom of speech on the internet. And um, a number of websites, Reddit and Wikipedia and a number of others had already decided to go dark on a particular day in January in protest. 
But we decided that doing uh, an in-person protest and actually getting out in front of our senator's offices would be a really good way to draw their attention to the fact that we cared about this issue. And so uh, for me, that was the first time I had ever organized a protest. I, I remember calling the NYPD um, because you have to get a permit. And, and I had, you know, I had looked up online through the ACLU how to organize a protest and uh, made that phone call to the NYPD. And I remember saying, you know, we, we want to get our point across. We, we, you know, we don't want to cause any trouble. We just really want to make sure that we're heard. And so a very nice woman at the NYPD walked me through everything that we needed to do. And uh, the day of the protest, we ended up with 2,000 people out in front of Senator Schumer and Senator Gillibrand's office. And um, and I think that was, you know, a, a big turning point in terms of the tech community really being engaged in policy and advocacy issues. And I know for Senator Schumer in particular, um, he's really expressed that that was a time for him where he really started to understand how important the tech community was, how much it was growing, and how much it cared about core issues. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know what year it was, but I remember uh, when you and Andrew Rache organized um, some kind of public hearings or public uh, discussions with the mayoral candidates. Right. Well, that was, was that for right the last that? mayoral election. That was pretty soon after that. Uh, let's see. So it would have been 2014, maybe, I guess, that we did the mayoral candidate forums. Yeah, and we, you know, we felt it was important to um, take all of the candidates who were running for mayor and get them in front of a group of of uh, people from the tech community and um, and have the tech community ask them questions and try to get a you know deeper understanding of how these candidates understood the tech community. And we recorded all of that and shared it with the community. And it, and it was helpful at, I think, both understanding the different candidates' points of view, but also to help them understand that this was a community that cared and was engaged and was really interested in what the tech policies were going to be going forward. Yeah, that that was a very special day. I, I remember it vividly, being being in the room and seeing the candidates. Uh, it was a friendly environment, but they were sweating yeah. a little bit. And <laughs> they wanted to be on their game, and they had their notes, and they were yeah. really yeah. trying to impress uh, the tech community in New York. Okay, and, and I think you may have said it. I believe we're up to 60,000 members. Yeah, well, after the merger with New York Tech with uh, New York Tech Council, and now that we're New York Tech Alliance, they brought a number of members over as well. So, as a combined organization, we're up to about sixty thousand members. Yeah, truly amazing. From yeah. two people, from two people in the room to sixty thousand, <laughs> Tru- truly amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, let's talk about the merger and describe what the new entity. You are the CEO of New York Tech Alliance, right? And it is this combination. Describe what we're all about and what 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 we're up to. Yeah, so um, New York Tech Alliance is really continuing a lot of the work that was started by New York Tech Meetup and New York Tech Council. We were both the same type of nonprofit organizations, 501c6 nonprofits, and we really realized that we were doing complementary work and that it made sense to come together, combine efforts, and really um, try to take advantage of that as a way to increase our capacity and have more impact in the community. So our missions are, are our sort of new mission is very much similar to what we were focused 
focused on before, you know, we're really looking at how can we support the tech community going forward? How do we help lead the tech community to really become even better, to think more broadly about how it's impacting the community, how it can support the broader community? And really the favorite part of our, our mission statement, my favorite part of our mission statement is the very end that talks about, you know, we're doing all of this not just to support the tech industry, but that those last few words are to create a better future for all. And for me, that's a really important distinction that we're not just in this for ourselves. We're really thinking about how does the tech industry make things better for everyone in the city, for people around the world, um, and, and really trying to infuse that thinking into the work that we do, the events that we do, that type of thing. With this new organization, this combination between these two great organizations, what kind of events, what kind of uh, programs uh, do we have to look forward to? Well, I think one thing that we've been doing a lot more of with our monthly meetup is just really thinking about the combination of companies that we choose to have on stage. Um, you know, we really try to make sure that we're not just featuring the standard kind of consumer product that um, you know, is helpful for a lot of, of daily life activities, but we're also looking at how can we feature things that are really getting at solving some problems for people that are maybe outside of the typical group of people that um, tech companies solve problems for. So with our most recent meetup, we had a um, very early stage company. They've just been around for a couple of weeks. They came out of a recent hackathon um, called Border Buddies. And it's uh, an app to really help track whether someone may be um, stuck at the airport when they're trying to come into the country um, from another country and how can often their phone is taken away. You know, they can't alert anybody that they're being held at customs. And so really neat kind of tracking thing that allows you to put in your flight information. Um, and if it seems like there's a problem that they've partnered with some uh, immigration law firms to send pro bono lawyers out to the airport to try to help you. So um, they're just getting that started. But it's that type of thing that we really like to feature on stage now just to show the breadth of how technology can really help solve a lot of different challenges. Um, the other thing that we've been doing for a couple of years now, and one of my favorite programs is the Women's Demo Night uh, that we do a few times a year. You know, I launched the Women's Demo Night probably about four years ago now, uh, in, in a way as a way to solve my own problem. I was finding that we just didn't have very many women applying to demo at our main monthly meetup. And even when I reached out to groups of women and said, you know, we really want you on stage, please come and apply. We really didn't get that much of a response. So I thought, you know, maybe let's do an experiment. I really don't want to have to do this separate segregated event for women but I wonder if we'll get more women to apply if we do this separate event. And I, I did that and I launched and put out the application and um, we had 47 female-founded companies apply the first time that we did it. Most of them I'd never heard of before. Um, there was just something about the labeling of it being a women's demo night. It was a more intimate audience, you know, a little bit of a kind of safer space for people to get out and do these demos for the first time in some cases. So we've continued to do that. I think for our last women's demo night, we had over 96 female founded companies apply. Uh, so when people say that women aren't founding companies, I always say yeah, they're, they're, they are definitely founding companies. They often are just flying a bit under the radar. Um, 
and we do those events. And, and the thing that's great about them is that they really act as a springboard for women um, to realize, A, that they are qualified to demo at technical demo nights, um, and B, often that they're working on really important products and that there are people out there who want to support them. From one of our last women's demo nights, two of the companies, um, Atticade and Benefit Kitchen, went on to win prizes at Big Apps. And I just saw that they got accepted to the 1776 Accelerator. And so, you know, there have been some things that um, without the Women's Demo Night, I know that Benefit Kitchen found out about Big Apps at the Women's Demo Night. And so it's really cool to see that trajectory. And and we keep doing the Women's Demo Nights because they're a great pipeline for us uh, to also get more women on stage at the main meetup. So most of the time we have women come and demo at the Women's Demo Night and we say, you're awesome you know, why haven't you applied to demo at the main meetup? Let's get you on stage right now. Um, so it, it continues to work. So we'll continue to do that to really try to help support the women in the community. That's tremendous. And I, I want to dive deeper into that in a little bit. Um, for the New York Tech meetup, the main, the quote unquote main event, how do you, you know, if people are listening to this and say, hey, you know, this sounds really cool. I want to check that out. I want to go. I want to watch it. How, how can they get involved? Yeah, so I think, you know, um, first of all, if you want to demo, we have a really simple application process um, on our website, which for the current moment is nytm.org. Um, there's an apply to present link right there. And, um, and we accept applications on a rolling basis. I get asked a lot, you know, what are the criteria? Is there some ranking checklist? And and in general, there isn't. So we don't have a, you know, a worksheet where we check boxes and rank companies. It's a little bit more of an art than a science, and it's something that um, I kind of learned what makes a good mix of companies on stage and what companies really demo well from Nate Westheimer, who was running the meetup when I joined, um, and now our director of operations, Andy Saldana, handles the monthly meetup and really does pretty much all of the demo selection, and he learned that process from me a lot, so it's something that we've been sort of passing on, um, and so we really we accept uh, applications from companies at almost any stage, from just coming out of a hackathon to sometimes really large companies are doing something very innovative, and it makes sense to to, to put one of their products on stage, you know, it has to make a good live demo. There's some products that are amazing, but they just don't demo well. It's not that interesting to see on stage. Um, and we look for a variety, you know, um, we, we want to showcase all of the different types of companies that are being built in New York. Um, so it's important for us to not necessarily fill the entire program with, you know, one type of, of app or, or one yeah. type of company. Um, and then in terms of tickets and people coming to the monthly meetup, um, we sell tickets through our meetup page. You can find the links at nytm.org also. And, um, you know, we do get a, a big crowd there, uh, usually 600 or so people, 700 people. Um, but definitely tickets are available. It's, uh, it's only $10.00. And, you know, I've never met somebody who said, oh, gee, that was a waste of money. <laughs> uh, you know, pretty much everyone comes up, especially we I always ask at the beginning of the meetup, 
you know, how many of you are here for the first time? And I would say on average, at least 60, 70% of the audience are newcomers. And New York Tech Meetup is really a great first step to get to know the technology community in, in New York, to meet other people in the technology community, and to just really see what's happening and get a sense for um, how the, the tech industry in New York works and what types of companies are being built. No, tremendous. And I'm going to post all these links in the show notes so that people listening who are interested can get involved, both for the quote unquote main event and for the women's tech meetup as well. And I believe we're still streaming uh, those events if you just want to sort of check it out from your your home computer at night. Yeah, well, our monthly meetup, definitely, we, we always have that streamed MLB Advanced Media, a homegrown New York tech company provides the streaming for our meetup every month. And then most of our other events, if we don't stream them, we at least get recordings of them and then share them afterwards. You know, a big part of um, your leadership at both New York Tech Meetup and at the New York Tech Alliance has been about diversity and inclusion. And uh, I know you're very passionate about this issue. Um, as we embark on this sort of new chapter in the, in the organization, and, you know, just from your own experience here in New York City as a, as a leader, as an organizer, um, what are your observations as to what our remaining obstacles are in this area? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, you know, it's a problem where we know what a lot of the causes are, but figuring out how to get through those is uh, can be incredibly difficult because a lot of it is really embedded in the culture. And I think if you ask a lot of women who have left the tech industry why they leave, a lot of it is that it just doesn't feel like a very comfortable place. You know, there's been a lot of headlines recently about um, companies like Uber and other companies that really have an environment that, um, that, in a lot of ways, doesn't support women because it, um, it 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 doesn't protect them from from sexual harassment and other things. And it's not just about women. I think, you know, anybody that falls outside of the the people that are typically in tech and have typically been in tech for a long time, um, if you're not made to feel welcome, if it doesn't feel like a place that you belong, then you're much more likely to just skip it and not become a part of it in the first place or to leave once you join. And so I think fixing that problem really takes everyone. Um, I think a lot of people are coming to realize that the earlier in the development of their company that they address issues of diversity, the more likely that they're going to then end up building a diverse company. So I think it was Brian Cohen, um, you know, well-known angel investor in the city who he and I were on a panel together and someone was asking, a young founder was asking for advice and Brian's piece of advice was, you know, make your first hire someone who doesn't look like you. Mm. Um, you know, and, and I think he specifically said, make your first hire a woman. Um, but, and I, you know, I think that's really great advice to at least start thinking about from the very beginning, how do you make sure that you're not just hiring, you know, all your buddies from college and everybody who looks exactly like you and people from that same circle, but how do you invite different viewpoints to the table from the start? And you've, you've written some really great pieces about this, about being thoughtful from the beginning about the type of company that you want to build. Um, I'll tell you, I, I was, you know, I have a friend who's a serial founder. He has two daughters He's very vocal on these issues himself. And we were at a, um, a lunch with a bunch of, you know, his founding team and early employees. And like 
in, in sort of in between courses, he kind of looked at me mournfully and said, you know, look what I've done. Mm. <laughs> it was like, yeah, he's like for all, you know, like it's, there were probably four or five people and they were all guys. And he was like, what have I done? Oops. Because it was the conversation and the type of conversation. And yep. he was like keenly aware of it. And he's like, you know, he kind of realized like, um, he needed to get, get on the page really quickly because it was already six months in Mm -hmm. almost too late. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I know that there, you know, there's some disagreements around when thinking about culture really matters. I've heard, you know, some people say, well, until you really have a product and you're generating revenue, it really should just be 100% purely about product development. To me, you're building a company from day one. Um, and, and you know, even if you get to the point where the product never works out and things fail and you only ended up with three employees, what's the harm in taking a little bit of time to think about what type of company do we want to have? What type of culture do we want to have? How are we going to handle hiring? Thinking through all of those things, because what I've seen happen a lot is that companies may think that they're starting out just with five people, but then all of a sudden something happens and they get some funding and they go from five or 20 people to 250 people in a year or two. And by that time, you know, that's a really short period of time. And if you didn't think at all about what type of company culture you wanted to create at the very beginning, by the time you have 250 people, you're getting to that point where it's a little bit too late. Uh, And so to me, it's not that you, you know, have to take a ton of time away from product development, but it's just being a little bit more intentional and a little bit more thoughtful and, and really infusing that into the building of the product and, and the growth of the company. And as you've pointed out before, you know, these fault lines that are, that exist in the company early may not be apparent, but when you're, you're at a a 90 person company, it starts to crack a lot Mm -hmm. of times and, you know, kind of, kind of collapse in on itself. And we're, as you've pointed out, we're seeing that in in, in some really public, public examples. Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Um, so that's that's uh, you know that's that's a big a big issue. Um, you've also been a big thinker and organizer in the space of the new future of work, the new environments that we're going to be in. You know, you've pointed out that um, I think you said something like forty or fifty percent of the workforce is going to be freelance by twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. You know, everything's shifting massively. What kind of companies are we going to build? And you've started um, a new tech meetup called the Human Tech Meetup to kind of mine that and explore that. What's that all about? Yeah, yeah, I'm really excited about it. It's something that kind of pulls together a number of different things that I've been thinking about over the years. So some of it is focused on how do we create companies that take human well-being into account? So, you know, I think corporate well-being programs have become a little bit kind of stereotypical in the sense that it's, um, you know, it's good for the bottom line to offer employees discounts on gym memberships and that type of thing. And I'm hoping that in the future we can really think about that a lot more holistically, that it's not really about the bottom line. It's really about the idea that 
treating people like human beings and incorporating uh, caring about their well-being into the building of a company from the very beginning helps you create a better company overall. And yes, that might lead to, you know, a healthier looking bottom line, but that it's just the right and smart thing to do from the very beginning. So some of it is that, you know, how do we internally treat people within companies? The other part of it is um, the external, you know, how do companies function in the community? What types of products are they building? Uh, how are they interacting with members of the community? Uh, are their companies, you know, supporting or harming the communities that they're in? Uh, so, so those types of things. And I think really reflecting this idea that, Although things are going to become more autonomous and robots might take over a certain number of our jobs, the jobs that are left are going to be more human, not less. So to me, it's really important that we embrace this idea that we're messy, complicated, emotional human beings and use that to our advantage and and really sort of learn how to be better human beings, learn how to... Um, take all of those things that we understand about ourselves and and understand them even more deeply and apply them more deeply to the work that we do. You've been at this for a while now. You're re- really, I like to say you're in the epicenter of tech and you have been for, for quite a while now. Um, what, without mentioning names, what kind of environments have you seen in startup companies, even venture-backed companies that move closer to this human-centered uh, approach I think, you know, there's a lot of investors who listen to this show, a lot of founders, as as we all know, it's, it's for so many people, you have the pressure from investors, uh, when you're running a company, you have so much to worry about. And but this is on a lot of people's minds. And sometimes people need a little encouragement or yeah. some examples to start moving in that direction. So I'm just curious what you've seen. Yeah, so I think, you know, there there are a lot of ways to approach it, and it doesn't require taking a lot of money or taking a lot of time necessarily. I think, um, you know, some of what I've seen in companies is um, just thinking differently about um, the type of environment that you create for the office, for instance. So, you know, one of my, my things that I um, have harped on a lot is this idea that you know, every startup office needs a ping pong table and a keg and, um, and <laughs> there are these kind of, you know, <laughs> the foosball table, these perks of working in a startup that are have become very emblematic of startup culture. And I think one of the challenges with that can be that if you are a non-drinker, if you don't drink for religious reasons, if you're an alcoholic, mm. um, you know, what is that going to say to you about whether you're going to feel comfortable and welcome at a company if there are bottles of Jack Daniels on desks all over the place and the culture is that people start drinking at four o'clock every afternoon. And, and there are a lot of people from outside the startup world that when I've mentioned things like the availability of alcohol in the workplace, especially people from bigger corporations, they're floored. You know, they've never heard of a company that has a keg readily available 24 seven or, you know, an entire refrigerator dedicated to beer. And it's not so much that those things are bad things. It's just that they send a signal. And, and I think there are a lot of things that send signals about what's important to a company. And so 
when a company says, we have a really hard time hiring women, or we have a really hard time hiring people from diverse backgrounds, you know, what, if they look at the signals, the vocabulary that they use, what they promote on their website as the benefits that they offer employees, you know, the pictures of who their current employees are, if you're a, a woman or a person of color and you're scrolling through a company page and all you see are photos of young white guys and the benefits listed are about beer and about foosball tables and that type of thing, are you going to look at that company and say, and raise your hand and say, that's the company that I want to join. Um, and I, you know, so I think that's where some of those things, it's not a lot of work. It's not, you know, totally upending your budget so that you can afford things. I mean, it might actually cost less money if you start looking at some of those some of those um, benefits that you're offering and really changing them up, you know, for people, for instance, um, that might have kids or um, at some point might be thinking about starting a family, you know, startup world can be very ageist as well. And um, so, you know, are they talking about health benefits? Are you talking about what type of leave you offer for, um, you know, people that, that are having kids? And, you know, and I get that sometimes it doesn't make sense when you're a three person company, to offer, you know, months upon months of maternity leave. Maybe you can't do that right in the beginning. But maybe you can be at least thoughtful and transparent about when we get to such and such a size, here's how we're going to reassess and change our benefits. That you at least can signal to people that this is on your mind and it's not something that you've completely forgotten about. Just to be thoughtful and, and be aware of the language, be aware of the signaling, um, anticipate what kind of culture you want over time. It's getting through, I think. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, I, th I think one of the challenges that I, that I sometimes come across is that um, I, I think there are some people, and I've heard this maybe a little bit more from investors, that sort of just say, well, the, the work of launching a startup just comes with some inherent kind of characteristics around it requires long hours. You know, you have to work 60 to 80 hours a week to launch a startup. It requires this incredible full-time commitment. You can't be a new parent while you're working on a startup. Um, it's just, you know, it, it's sort of not in the cards if that's what you want to do. And, you know, and I think, hey, I don't really believe that. I think we're smarter than that. I think we can work smarter than that. I think there are a lot of people who have built companies while starting families. Um, there are a lot of people who have built companies without working 80 hours a week. Uh, and, and so I think that argument is one of the things that sometimes prevents us from embracing some of these tools for um, inviting a broader cross-section of our community into work in startups. Because, you know, if you say that to work in a startup, you must be okay with working 80 hours a week. You must, you know, stay through dinner time and never get home for dinner with your family. Then you're already ruling out a huge portion of the population participating in the startup culture. And I, and I think that um, what then can happen too is that that A just keeps it the same group of people that have been doing this forever. It reduces the diversity. But it also means that the products themselves are not getting developed in a way that reflects the broad community. And that, you know, to me, if you're really trying to develop a successful product, don't you want it to be applicable and useful to the biggest part of the community possible? You want a big market. And so, 
you know, inviting a diverse community of people to participate in the development of that product means that you're most likely going to end up with better, more useful products. And this is the part of it that uh, investors wittingly or unwittingly encourage, right? Um, We had Jerry Colonna on some episodes ago. Love Jerry. It's fantastic. (laughs) And he was saying, I think he called it, you know, this is the crack that, that the investors are pushing. As well, yeah. Uh, wh- whether they say it outright or not, that that's kind of uh, there, and it's it's just hanging out there, and um, it also has consequences on you know the mental health of founders and early employees, etc. Because you know, apart from all the pressure you have, you feel this this strain uh, on this impetus to quote kill yourself. Uh, yeah. While you're yeah. doing this. Um, you know, how do you, how do you think about that? Um, I know you have this, the, the human tech meetup starting. What what are your thoughts on the mental health issues that you're seeing? Yeah. I mean, the, the impetus, uh, the other impetus behind, behind the human tech meetup was, is really about mental health. And, um, a couple of years ago, I was really just struck by report after report about startup founders committing suicide and just seeing some stats about the rates of depression, um, being higher among entrepreneurs, I mean, significantly higher than the general population. And, um, and then, uh, having myself experience periods of depression and dealing with that and knowing that it can be, I think, especially in the startup world. And there, and there are a lot of other industries as well, the finance industry. And I think others where, there's this need to ha- present something externally around how well you're doing, even if that's not how you're feeling internally. And actually, one of my favorite cartoons about there's this, there's this great artist, Hugh McLeod. He has this cartoon, and it's two monsters side by side. And one is saying, I'm killing it. And, you know, that's representing what you're saying outwardly. And then the other monster is saying inwardly, it's killing me. <laughs> and, um, and I think that that's a perfect representation of what happens a lot within the startup community. You know, you go to networking events and somebody asks you how your startup is going and your response is supposed to be, we're killing it. You know, it's, it's going great. Things are growing. Um, and, and then what is often happening is because of all of that pressure and, and because, you know, startup life has lots of ups and downs. Um, there are a lot of people that for them internally, it's just killing them. Uh, and I know that that's a lot of the work that Jerry now does around supporting founders and, um, and now working, he's working with investors too, to kind of help understand this bigger picture of, you know, how do we still build these companies, but do it with a lot less collateral damage on the mental health of the people involved? Right. And, and how do you as an investor set the tone in your approach and in your conversations? How do you as a founder, um, sort of live the by example Mm -hmm. for everyone in the company early on? What kind of conversations do you have? You know, everyone's looking for signals, right? Yeah. Um, you, you know, you came from, you were a leader in the Girl Scout organization. I'm just curious. I'm, what I'm getting to is, is how you got like this. This is yeah. because I, I, <laughs> I love it. You, you were a leader in the Girl Scout organization before you got into quote unquote New York tech. Um, yeah. What influenced you? What did you see? What did you learn? that informed sort of your lens on things now? 
So I, I started my career at Girl Scouts in Southern California, and it was a really interesting experience for me because I think from the outside, a lot of people hear the name Girl Scouts, and they think, you know, warm, fuzzy nonprofit that's supportive of women and girls and all of these great things. And it is those great things from an external standpoint and in terms of the programs that it has for girls. But interestingly, the culture within the organization and how people were treated was completely the polar opposite of what you would think. And um, it was a very toxic culture that didn't have a very high level of trust. It was an environment where, you know, if you wanted to take the afternoon to take your child to the doctor or even just go see their soccer game or something, um, you know, you couldn't just take an, an hour off. You had to submit a vacation request to take an entire half day off of work to go and do that. And this was an organization that was all about empowering women and um, employed 95% working parents. And I just couldn't understand why that was the case, why people weren't trusted to do their work, why it was about command and control as opposed to saying, here's what our expectations are of you. And in terms of what we need you to get done in order to be successful at this job, and you're an adult, you know, you figure it out. I felt like I had just graduated from college and then gone back to kindergarten, that uh, the amount of control that was placed over the time and what people were doing when, um, and just this idea too that depending on your level in the organization that you as a human being deserved more trust if you were at a higher rank in the organization, that mm. um, someone who was an administrative assistant couldn't be trusted as much as someone who was a vice president. And that really bothered me. And so when when I eventually moved up the ranks, became CEO of that Girl Scout Council in Southern California and just kind of said, you know, I just don't think this is right. I don't think this is the way we should run a company. It's not working. People aren't very happy. We're not very innovative. We've got to do things in a different way. Um, and I happened to, at the time, stumble across this book called Why Work Sucks and How to Fix It. Um, really cool book uh, written by two women at Best Buy headquarters who had launched a program called The Results Only Work Environment. And, um, and you know, I, I think there are variations of it now in workplaces all around the country. It was really about this idea of transitioning from monitoring people and judging people based on their time to looking at their work and their results. And as opposed to saying, okay, you know, you pass because you clocked in successfully at 8am and you clocked out successfully at 6pm. It was more about what are you actually delivering? Um, and so we implemented that and, and had a lot of success with it. There were challenges too, you know, switching from an environment where you're really monitored on your time to where you're trying to monitor people's actual output and work can be really difficult. But it opened my eyes to this idea of treating people with respect, treating people like adults, um, the idea that work doesn't always have to be done in an office, that if you're going to require people to come to a physical space to do work, that you should have a good reason that they're required to be there. Um, that, you know, that sometimes the work that people has to do, have to do gets done better somewhere else that, um, teaching people how to have a high level of self-awareness and understand themselves and understand where they work best. That's more valuable than forcing people to come into an office and expect that they're always going to get their best work done sitting at one particular desk between, you know, certain hours in the day. Um, and I know there are a lot of startups now where, it's pretty common for people to 
have various different schedules and work from different places. But I also have recognized in the startup community that there's a huge focus on FaceTime and on being present in an office, which again, to me, you know, doesn't make total sense. I get that startups often feel that they're under time pressure and they really need to physically be in the same space to get things done faster. And I think that makes sense to a certain extent and under certain circumstances, but I also think that that physical presence requirement and 100% physical presence all the time requirement can make things difficult in terms of attracting, again, a diverse workforce. That if you allow some flexibility, if you allow some you know, times when people need to be together and times when people don't, um, it can allow you to have a much more diverse workforce and, and really invite a broader cross-section of people to your company. And there are a lot of companies that are doing it successfully. You know, Mozilla has a very diverse, very dispersed workforce, um, and that works really well for them. Um, and, and there are a lot of companies out there that, that take that approach. So I think, again, some of it is not about there being a prescriptive one-size-fits-all or one thing is purely bad and one thing is purely good. It's more about being thoughtful and thinking about, well, why are we doing this? Are we expecting people to be at the office just because that's easy and that's the default? Or do we really have a real reason and have we really figured out that having 100% of our employees employees in the same physical space produces the best results? You wrote about the ideal of cultures that don't play off fear, false superiority, or treating work as an exchange of labor for money. I love that. I love that observation. Um, I, I see so many environments where it's exactly like that it it's yep. this fa- this sense of false superiority because you were hired earlier or you're a founder and someone yep. is lower down on the quote totem pole than you are and it's like this false air of you know I know more than you I'm 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 better than you etc those are t- to me those those you know really talented people don't want to work in environments like that anymore. Yep. And it's going to, and it's going to be as people get more and more choices, those environments are, are going to go away over time because they will yeah. not be able to retain and leaders that don't have a human centered approach. Let's put it this way. The more people embrace the kind of culture that you're talking about, the more difficult it will be for the, you know, other model to, to survive. Mm-hmm. I, I think, yeah, or I think so think. too. I mean, I I think, you know, there are always probably going to be some people out there that will put up with a lot of crap from horrible leaders because they, you know, really respect the company or because they potentially see it as a path to quick wealth. But I think the number of people in that category is shrinking. Um, And I think some of it is also just being driven by this idea that we, we all have to really redefine what success means to us and that... Um, what used to be the standard kind of American dream has shifted a lot. And so this idea that, um, you know, you can get rich quick or the idea that you're going to have a 40 year career at a company and require uh, retire with an amazing pension and, you know, just be taken care of by the company that you work for all the time in that same way that, you know, maybe our parents and grandparents were, now that doesn't exist anymore. So I, I think people are, expecting a lot more in terms of uh, just thriving and flourishing and having a good life now, as opposed to this idea that they're going to put 
a good life on pause until they get to retirement age or until they get to that pot of gold at some point along the way that they that they feel like they need to have access to that good life now because it's not going to be waiting for them at the end. There is no more pot of gold at the end of that rainbow. The sad, the sad sort of subset of all this is where people don't have a choice and they're trapped. And yep. that's the worst thing to see. And I've seen it many times in my life where they feel they don't have options and mm-hmm. they, they work in environments of fear and the, and the false superiority. And uh, it's really a deadening experience. I, I don't know what the solution for those things is going to be, but uh, I'm definitely posting this in the show notes, Human Tech Meetup. Uh, yeah. Jess is organizing that. Let's see what, what, what kind of community can, can emerge from that. Okay, so... I have to ask you this. You, you're in. You're in the epicenter of tech. I don't know how many years it's been now here in New York. You know, what are your orchestral kind of thirty thousand foot views down on the New York tech scene? What do you What do you see happening? You came here from California. You've been involved, heavily involved. What 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 is taking shape here, please? Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, just like massive growth. So it's been six years since I moved to New York, and six years since I've been with New York Tech Meetup, and. And, you know, when I first got here, uh, it was it was a pretty still a pretty small, tight knit community. I would go to events and see the same people over and over and over again, uh, which was great um, in some ways. But it's also it's really cool to go to events now and be like, wow, I don't know any of these people. Uh, And that really is an indication to me of how many more people are getting involved. Um, I think. You know, the the big picture changes that have happened are just really reflect the overall changes in terms of tech just being an integral part of every industry in New York City. Uh, And I think because New York is the capital of so many different industries from finance to fashion to advertising, um, you know, it really means that our tech industry is diverse from that perspective in that we have a lot of, you know, tech and tech and finance, tech and advertising. And so see a lot more people within those spaces getting engaged in tech, um, a lot more companies that are traditionally not recognized as tech companies, whether it's a financial services company like MasterCard or a publishing company like New York Times, um, they really see themselves as tech companies now because, tech is such an integrated part of everything that they do on a day-to-day basis. And so, you know, I see growth in that area. I also just see, you know, New York has really been trying to approach workforce development uh, in a strong way. Um, You know, the mayor made a great, um, is, is making a great effort to get computer science into the public schools and make sure that every child in New York City public schools is exposed to computer science, which, you know, to me, making computer science a mandate as opposed to an option is one of the things that will also help drive more diversity in tech in the future, that if every child is exposed to it, then every child has a chance to say, you know, I'm good at this, or I think I could be good at this, or this seems really interesting, and this is something that I want to do. You know, here here we are, 2017. Give us the the roadmap. What's going to happen in the next year for the Tech Alliance, for Jessica Lawrence? What, What are you looking forward to? Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to uh, to just continuing to grow our programming, and uh, and I think we, you know, the the community as a whole is making a lot of headway in terms of being more diverse, seeing more women engaged, seeing more people of color and people from all different communities in New York engaged. I think 
Um, you know, a lot of people, given the politi- current political climate, are very motivated to get involved, especially at a civic level, and really thinking about how they can use their technology skills to support nonprofit organizations, to, you know, really help the community come together, to help people take action. I think the the general community, even outside of tech, is much more engaged in, in politics, in uh, advocacy, in thinking about the issues that they're concerned about. And I've seen some great things happening in the tech world with you know, helping people just stay connected and stay engaged and um, not just become engaged, you know, right before or after an election, but really thinking about, you know, how do we help people do things like call their elected officials on a more regular basis or stay on top of votes that are happening uh, with issues that are important to them. And I think tech can really play a role in helping citizens be more engaged going forward. I love it. I'm so glad uh, the audience got a chance to get to know you a little bit, Jessica. Thanks a ton for being on. I really do appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Show you around, give you a taste of business, you know? <laughs> <laughs>